0: Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Prime Time with Sean Mooney. And, man, the lineup of great guests continues here on the podcast. Last week was definitely, uh, we had one of those, that was for sure, one of the greatest superstars to ever step into the ring in the WWF, WWE, the one and only Ted DiBiase. And, uh, you know, I believe that if you've taken the time to listen to that podcast uh, this past week with Ted, you came away with a lot more uh getting to know him, uh, a very different view of a person that we all knew as the million-dollar man. But after you heard him talk about his life and his triumphs and the tragedies that he had and the redemption he experienced along the way, I, I think you have a, a very different view. Uh, I said before, I think he's richer than he's ever been. Uh, I also hope last week's podcast really gave you an idea of what this show's all about, not only learning about you know the experience that these uh, folks have had in the ring, Uh, during the peak of their careers, but also, you know, finding out who they really are. And and Ted DiBiase has a fascinating story to tell in that movie that uh, just came out this past week. It's called The Price of Fame. And what a great story. It premiered. And uh, I know a lot of folks got a chance to see it. I hope uh, you were one of them. But if you didn't, I'm sure there's going to be other ways that they're going to get that uh, film out there. But uh, it it really is a, a great story. And uh, as I mentioned, we've got a lot more great guests on the way, including uh, some other great superstars and, you know, other people who've had uh, a tremendous impact in the world of professional wrestling. Uh, that is certainly the case with my guests on the podcast this week. I mean, really, folks? Come on. Who else would I want to have on as one of my first guests on this program than one of the greatest announcers in the history of professional wrestling, and we're not talking just, you know, not play by player commentary. I know everybody has their their people that they, uh, you know, believe are great at that. But when it comes to interviews and hosting, come on. No one does it better than Mean Gene Oakland. Although we, before we get to Gene, uh, I want to remind everybody that I still have DVDs of the unreleased never-before-seen matches 1986 to 1985. And I'm going to draw this week's winner... After I have my talk with my pal Gene. So be sure and stick around. You could be uh, the person that I will send that signed DVD to. Okay, so all you have to do uh, to for that chance to win, I want to thank everybody uh, who has already done this, but go to iTunes, give us a review and a rating, and, of course, subscribe. We want you to subscribe. We don't want you to miss a single episode. And then I throw all those names into the... There it is, the ding, ding, ding bowl. And I'm going to pick one out. Uh, after we talk to Gene, and it could be you. Now, keep the comments and the questions and the suggestions coming. You can reach me directly through Twitter at SeanMooneyWho or at PrimetimeMLW and by email at primetime at MLW.com. And now it's time to get to my very special guest here on the podcast. As I said before, the greatest announcer and interviewer in the history of professional wrestling, Gene Okerlund. And before we get to Gene, though, i got to give you a little backstory and intrigue on him. Doing my research, I learned a few things about Gene I'd never heard before. Among them, that he grew up on an Indian reservation in South Dakota, that he also studied journalism, and he had a singing group that recorded a couple of hits. I can't wait to hear more on all that. He started his career, as many of you know, with Vern Gagne and the AWA. And, you know, people have asked me uh, many times to rate the best announcers uh, of all time, not just the WWF. And I always say, you know, there's. There's uh, Gene Okerlund, and then there's the rest of us. You don't put anybody else in order behind him, and no one compares. And with that, I want to welcome my longtime, close personal friend, WWE Hall of Famer, Mean Gene Okerlund. Gene, thanks so much for joining us this morning here on Primetime.
1: You know, Mooney, it's pretty tough for me to follow that, uh, that intro. And huh? uh, you're talking about uh, uh, some of the accomplishments that I've had on the microphone uh, on the announcing side of our business, but uh, I always kind of categorized everybody, you know, the, uh, the play by play guys, right. yeah. the, uh, the, uh, the utility guys, guys yeah. the color guys. Yeah. And then there were the interview guys and that's kind of a lost art today. Oh, you, no you kidding. just don't have that many pure interviews where yeah. you're shooting from the hip. Yeah. They're scripted and, uh, Kind of a canned, but I find those really quite boring. I yeah. liked it when you could fly by the seat of your pants with guys like Savage and Flair, and of course Hulk Hogan. Andre yeah. was a little tough, but uh, <laughs> that's another thing.
0: That's another story, which we will get into as we go here. But uh, you know, I said uh, my you know my longtime close personal friend. Before we get into it, where did that come from? I mean, it's 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 kind of your signature. But do you remember when that you first coined that? Uh, Alex, I, I
1: would have to say that's got to be probably back in the in the '80s <laughs> when we were moving forth with uh, when things like that were allowed to be said on yeah. on television. Yeah. Today, uh, I I don't know on on wrestling television if you could get away with some of that old canned Carnegie stuff, but uh, it it kind of worked for me, and I'll probably continue it on for the rest of my career.
0: Yeah, I uh, love it.
1: which we we. <laughs> at 74, uh, we're hoping it's maybe another 20 years.
0: Yeah. A twenty, 25, 30. Let's go. I know you can do yeah. it because you're as still going you strong. You, you haven't slowed down a, up bit. a Cocktail. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's begin at the beginning though. Did you really grow up on an Indian reservation?
1: I grew up in Sisseton, which is on the Sisseton-Wahpeton Indian reservation up in, uh, Northeastern South Dakota. And, uh, the town was probably around 3,500, 4,000 wow. people at most. And, uh, of course, a lot of the Native Americans uh, hailed from there, and they were a big part of my early life. Still today, uh, in the summer, we go up to northern Minnesota, and there I get a chance to see the Ojibwa, uh Native Americans. And the delightful people, all of them. And yeah. they do like to have fun.
0: Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people knew that connection. And of course, another reminder, folks, you cannot uh, uh, take uh, you know everything you get on the internet as as truth. They had me born in Phoenix forever. And, and I just figured, okay, if they think I was born in Phoenix when I was actually born in Rochester, New York. So uh, one fact that uh, they thought was putting out there was was uh, proven to be false this, uh, in this broadcast uh, that you actually were born in, in uh, South Dakota. So uh, the other... Uh, th- thing I wanted to ask you about is the fact that you had a band. I mean you were a singer. I know you sang at WrestleMania, but uh you really had a band that you had a couple of, of recorded I mean, hits.
1: It, it was an old garage band, Sean. And, Gene uh, Carroll uh, and the Shades. It was, Gene <laughs> Carroll and the Shades. And uh we uh we it was not a great group, but it was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. And uh I think most of the guys in that in that band of five are gone today. But a couple of guys that I still stay in touch with and uh, we kind of kicked the can down the road about the good times we had and all the little uh, uh, dance halls and ballrooms that we played in all over the Midwest. A very exciting thing for me at the time. But, you know, all good things must come to an end (laughs) and onward and upward to a radio, which I got into in college and uh, enjoyed it immensely. And that's where it all started, really.
0: Yeah, and you're studying journalism.
1: I was. I studied studied under uh, Dr. Thomas White, uh, who was one of the great uh, journalism guys who kind of dabbled in electronic journalism back in those days. Mm -hmm. It was kind of unheard of, but it was the uh, kind of the entry of uh, uh, radio and uh, television news, Mm -hmm. and uh, all of that kind of helped me, I guess, in the, in the career that I chose in kind of an awkward way, I yeah. filled in for somebody at the time, and, and that's how it all happened.
0: Yeah, but in, in radio, a lot of people talked about the how they, you know, developed their voice. It was just a, it, a great uh, place to, you know, to really develop. And is that when you really started to think about, hey, you know, I could make a career out of this?
1: Well, I just didn't fun? really have <laughs> quite that much confidence uh, yeah. early on, but... Uh, uh, whether I was going to make a career out of it. It was a start. I think that's what we all do in life. It's uh, a start. And then it's probably one thing to another. I, I got into radio for a few years in the uh, mid and late 60s, the old top 40 uh, rock jock uh, type of thing. And I, I enjoyed that. And of course, music had been a big part of my life. So. I was playing the Beatles, Roy Orbison, uh, all of the uh, top 40 hits of the day.
0: Wow. And it, went, and it was a, I imagine it was a lot of fun back in the day to be able to spin records the way, you know, it wasn't pressing a button. You were actually putting them on there and making,
1: putting the needle you on. and put the 45s the on and cue them up and, and it would kick them off, start them, and stop them. Yeah. And uh, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I worked with a lot of great guys.
0: And then, and then it all began. Nineteen, uh, but seventy-one. Uh, I don't know what your first connection was Ga- with Vern Gagne was, but uh, one uh, one evening he was sh- uh, short of an announcer there, and uh, I, I don't know if it was a Wally Pip moment, you know, with like uh, who, to, who Lou Gehrig took over for, but you took I, I think you stepped in for Marty O'Neill, and and the rest is history. I, I, well, how did I that did. all
1: happen? For the for the great Irishman from St. Paul. Uh, what happened is Vern came up to me with a, a, a guy that worked for him as a producer by the name of Al DeRuscia. Yeah. I was working at the television station as a salesman, as an account guy. Uh-huh. And uh, he said, do you have a, a coat and tie? I said, well, I do. <laughs> this happened to be a Saturday, which yeah. was kind of unusual. But I, I kept one there because occasionally I would pop on the air. It was mm-hmm. an indie, not of a yeah, you did a, it
0: all back then, right? You sold. Right, you, you did were it expect, all. You wore
1: all yeah. the hats. Yeah. But uh, no, uh, I, I, I got on that first night, and he just said, call what you see, and uh, I'll be there to help you. And, and you knew nothing really about wrestling, right? <laughs> Pardon? And that was know wrestling. Any, yeah, yeah. Nothing. But you didn't know anything about it, yeah. <laughs> <Like me>. Nada. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it all worked out, and uh, I had fun, and I made some money. A little uh little side money there that uh I, I enjoyed for a long time until it became a career, and then it was all about money, i guess
0: yeah, and so it was uh initially you were just kind of stepping in or once you did it you you know he hired you and and it and you went from there and quit your job at the t v station How did that transition happen
1: no 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 no, I stayed at the t v station till nineteen seventy eight so oh, wow. I spent, uh okay. Eight years there as a peddler, as they say, Uh and also a part-time wrestling guy. I'd probably put in four or five days a month on wrestling. The rest of the time was, uh, was an account executive for, uh, a Chris craft station in Minneapolis, which ultimately became a Gannett property. Uh And, uh, I bailed out of there, got in the advertising business in 78, uh, so I could, uh, facilitate and have the flexibility to do wrestling both uh here in the u.s and in canada and we traveled to toronto winnipeg and occasionally uh, vancouver but uh it, it it became kind of a big deal and in wrestling i could even feel in the late 70s and early 80s that something big was about to happen and it sure did
0: yeah, and and that was a pretty pretty big territory. He covered a lot of uh, of area, Everything I mean, from, from Chicago,
1: Chicago to San yeah. Francisco, wow. right?
0: Wow, and which was kind of unusual because of the way the territories were carved up across the country. I mean, Ganya had a had a big stake, and uh, so you were getting a lot of play across the country. That's just when TV was. I mean, how did they how did they get their programs out? We know what Vince did with the syndication, but how did they do TV in those different markets then? The same way.
1: Same way, same way it was uh, all syndicated. They would bicycle the tapes, and there yeah. are so many great interviews that were ultimately erased uh, really? with guys like The Crusher and The Bruiser, Mad Dog Vashon, uh, Jesse Ventura, uh-huh. uh, even Hulk in the early days. Uh, you know, he had a few rough, rough edges on him, but he became probably one of the most uh, dynamic uh on-air personalities for for wrestling uh in in the history of uh of our business. Mm-hmm. And uh I still stay in very close contact with him and I'm sure he's going to be back on the scene. Maybe not in the ring per yeah. se, but he will be back as a major personality.
0: Yeah, and Jane, during that time and and you talked a little bit about how you know you could do stuff with these interviews. You could just, you know, Freewheeling, basically, they would give you an idea. Okay, we've got a storyline here. Is that where you developed really, uh, you know, the style, the what, what everybody be, you know came to know how you did these interviews then, uh, or, or, or did you look back? You just say I was just, I was just working. I mean, how did as you look back at those? Was that really a period where you developed your style?
1: I, I would, I would say because I, I took, I took a lot of uh, the, 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 the traits and the strengths of a lot of guys on the air, and uh, local guys, uh, some national guys. But uh, I kind of threw them all together, and it was a little uh, Henny Youngman, who yeah. was the uh, car dealer out in, uh, out in California. Cal something. Cal Worthington. I can't remember. Or... Cal, Cal Worthington? Worthington. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. A little bit of that, and then maybe a little bit of uh, you know some guys like uh, maybe Acostas, or a Gumble, or some of the uh, the guys today that that are real straight. Yeah. I'm not saying that that uh, necessarily Gumble and but but I say Gumble and, and Kossis, uh have certainly proved it in longevity, and uh, I enjoy what they do.
0: Yeah, and do you think it was in a sense where, uh, like you you came across as a very uh, you know uh, direct interview, or you you would stick, but kind of that tongue in cheek. And you were able to to just in a look. I look back at some of these interviews, and you would just look at the camera that, and and it just said so much. Uh, that that was nobody's matched it since. And I remember being there and just watching you. Uh, it, it, it just you know, were you, were, were you aware of that, or was it just
1: just the way well, you did uh, it? Well, here 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 here's the thing. You you say uh, tongue in cheek, yeah. Uh, Some of the big boys back on network television uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s were talking to uh, uh, great athletes like uh, uh, perhaps a a Fran Tarkington or uh, some of the great basketball players and baseball players. And I was talking to Jesse Ventura. Right. So it was a little different, and of course it would have to be Tongue in the,
0: cheek, yeah, with the feather boa and everything else that went with it. Right,
1: <laughs> right. You, you, you didn't see some of the big jocks of the day uh, coming on with a boa and right. spandex and, and uh, who knows what else. Two rags
0: on their head, and, yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it was it was a little uh, abnormal, and uh, but I, I wanted to make it informative, and I wanted to make it entertaining, and yeah. hopefully that would equate to ticket sales and in the long run that's exactly what we did.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, you mentioned, you know, Jesse from Minnesota, um, was great at that. I don't know about his ring skills so much, but that kind of showed you how, uh, you know, these personalities were catapulted in, in front of people was, was how they performed in front of a camera. And, uh, there's kind of a misconception. Everybody thinks it was the Hulkster who, who, crowned or gave you the nickname mean gene, but it was Jesse, right?
1: It was Jesse. And I'd say that'd be uh, circa 1977. Yeah. Uh, and it's a classic story. I'm not going to repeat it, but, uh, <laughs> Jesse uh, w- was pretty good at doing things like that. Yeah. And he was into the rock scene. So he was a big name dropper and he was really a, a target for a, a mean gene character.
0: Yeah. That's great. And it it stuck. And,
1: uh, but he was just one of, you know,
0: I, I, you look at, at some of these great names that came out of Minnesota and Robbinsdale. I mean, uh, Ganya went to that high school there uh, Robbinsdale high school, but you know, also, you know, Kurt Hennig and, and,
1: uh, Richard Rude. Rude.
0: Yes. who would be. Uh, and and King certainly
1: King. the Legion of doom. Yeah. The Berserker, uh, John Nord. The, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Viking and the Berserker and a ton of other aliases.
0: You imagine going to that uh, high school gene <laughs> well it must seem like, uh, you know, like, yeah. like marvel like marvel comic
1: that. books you know yeah. i'd hate to see what the uh, wrestling team looked like
0: <laughs> no kidding yeah uh, that's right. where they were shooting that yeah that must have been something but um, what but minnesota do you think what it was because of ganya and and these wrestlers came there and they raised their families or why was it such a hotbed for professional wrestling
1: because they they were they were traveling Four days a week, and most of it was by air, so yeah. it was easy travel. You weren't sitting in a car nine hours a day, driving uh, five, 600 miles between uh, towns and working seven days a week. So it was kind of the good life and the pay, quite honestly, Sean. Yeah. was very good for a wrestler. Uh, even a mid-card guy would, back in those days, in the uh, early 70s, was making a hundred grand or a hundred and a quarter. Wow. And yeah. that's good money today, that's but it was great, but... great money back then. Yeah. And with that kind of a plush schedule, it was even more uh, in demand.
0: Yeah. Um, did you first meet uh, Terry th- Belia before, before WWF, right? Did I he met go him to in the
1: AWA. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, the first really stand up interviews that he ever did was done with uh with me right and i i I, we had numerous takes on uh market specific interviews Mm -hmm. and uh finally it 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 all kind of fell in place and this character developed and Mm -hmm. that's let me tell you something brother
0: yeah yeah
1: that's that's where all that came
0: from yeah yeah,
1: yeah, and but but there
0: were rough beginnings. It's kind of hard for us to to see that. But when uh, the Hulkster and you see in some of those early matches that uh, you know, as we saw what it rose to, it, it's interesting to see the very beginning of that. And you were you were right there. So it it, it did take a little smoothing of the edges, and uh, you were there to help him
1: out. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, uh, even today he credits me with uh, uh, helping him out initially. And uh, as a result of that, I got a, uh, a huge payday on teaming up with him in uh, our, our, our home territory there in mm-hmm. Minneapolis out at the Old Met Center. And we drew about 16,000 people. Oh. And Hulk Hogan and Mean Gene met the team of George the Animal Steel and the <laughs> nefarious Mr. Fuji. Yes, and who got who the pin? Great... Yeah, right. <laughs> and I got the pin. You got the Thanks pin. Thanks to Hogan. <laughs> throwing me up in the air. But Fuji, I was uh, kind of uh, leery of him. He had that, that famous finishing hole that took many of opponents yes. out, and that was the old five-on-two. Yeah,
0: that's funny. Um, did you see, though, at the beginning with that, that there was something about uh, Terry Balea, about who would become Hulk Hogan? Did you, I mean, besides just the yeah. stature and everything, but did you see something in him right away?
1: He came off the movie Rocky three where he'd worked with uh, Stallone yeah. and initially before he even arrived, he had gone after the movie out uh, on a vacation out in uh, Hawaii to work with uh, Ed Francis and uh, Lord Alfred uh, or Lord James Blair's and mm-hmm. uh, some of the guys out there. I think even Morocco was, uh, was out there at that time, but uh, uh, he, he he came in and uh, I actually, I had a cutout of him that I'd talk about this guy that was going to be coming to the AWA mm-hmm. in the next uh, few weeks. And uh, we put him over as kind of a, a heel. And his manager, who was with me, was a guy by the name of Luscious Johnny Valiant, uh-huh. who I'm sure you remember yeah. very well. Nobody could figure out what the hell he was saying, but that <laughs> was neither here nor there. It didn't but, matter. But, but all of a sudden, they'd take a look at Hogan, and they didn't want to buy him as a bad guy, Vern Gagne right. being a pretty good judge of character said, this guy needs to be a baby face. Uh-huh. And, uh, hence, uh, uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, incredible Hulk Hogan, uh, I have the tiger, all of those things that kind of disappeared on that character as it emerged to what it, uh, ended up being at say like a WrestleMania one.
0: Now, Gene, do you, and maybe you know the story on this and how it happened, that uh, before he came to the AWA, he was really, he was still the property of uh, WWWF with Vince Senior, and uh, legend has it, and that, which means it could be absolutely untrue, that he was not pleased that that uh, Terry had done this Thunderlips thing with, with the Rocky movie, and is that how he ended up leaving and ending up in the AWA? How did you, how, do you know how well, that went?
1: Well, yeah, Vince Senior gave him the uh, the name Hulk, right. uh, or 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 Hulk Hogan. Right. Uh, so there was no confusion as to Lou Ferrigno and the Incredible Hulk, the right. big green monster. Uh, this was the Blonde Bomber, and yeah. uh, and Hulk Hulk actually did have a contract with the uh, with Vince Senior, but uh, Vince Senior was a, a very understanding guy in the business wasn't as rough or mechanical as it is today. Uh-huh. Everything, everybody is, has signed a, a contract for uh, services rendered, and uh, most of them are on, even even as John Cena today, who is a, a very big name in the business, along with many, many others, but uh, they work as independent contractors. They are not employees of the company. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I today work for WWE as an independent contractor, which yeah. is uh, good for both of us because it gives me a little flexibility to do some things outside of the, of the circle, the territory of the WWE. Which and I make world. various appearances. Yeah, right. <laughs> All over the country yeah. and uh, and the world too.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you remember in taking you back then uh, you would end up going to the, the WWF in 84, but prior to that, and all this was starting to crush. It was, you know, you, the rumblings of the WWF and Vince uh, basically mortgaging the house and everything else to do what he wanted to do. But what were you hearing about what was happening over there in New York about uh, with the WWF?
1: You, you know, I was thinking a lot of different things, but I don't know when you get guys like like Hogan yeah. and behind the scenes, you've got a, a Pat Patterson. And then you've got Vince, who is absolute uh genius as, yeah. as we all know yeah. uh, he, he he's not a softy, but uh, <laughs> I don't think you could be and and make it in this in this game today or or even back then
0: yeah in well, you can imagine it, yeah, you can imagine what he was doing, remember when he was taking over these territories that that was uh, not going over didn't go not, I didn't was right well.
1: right yeah. there in the, yeah. in the front row, my office in uh in the Minneapolis is where the call emanated to Vern Gagne with an offer and a generous one because I overheard the whole thing uh-huh. that he was going to pay for that territory. Plus, he was going to give Vern and his son, Greg, a job and use as much talent as they possibly could out of that AWA stable. Ganya uh-huh. said uh, in two short words. Uh, not interested. Uh, <laughs> Were those the words, and, uh, or a couple of other? Well, no, they they weren't. <laughs> they weren't the words. But uh, yeah. it it they, obviously that deal uh, never took place. And to tell you the truth, Vern Gagne should have taken it. As mm-hmm. I look at it we'll in retrospect, back. because uh, he ended up uh, losing most of uh, God it was a fortune back then. Yeah, you know, forty fifty million dollars down to nothing. Wow.
0: So how did the connection start with you, with the with the WWF? Was it a phone call? Well, was I, I, it,
1: I, I think it was Hulk. And the fact that Pat Patterson was so close with uh, Vince, they threw in a few good words. And actually, Vince is a guy that called me first. And, uh, of course, he, he was going for broke. Mm-hmm. And uh, he put it all on the line that led up to, I think, WrestleMania 1, which uh, would have been the, I guess the, the point of either yay or nay, and it was a, a big yay, but back then we didn't even have pay-per-view cable. Everything right. was on close closed
0: circuit. circuit. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it was very archaic, uh, very tough. You had to rent out uh, any kind of a a venue that would be, I guess, some of them like, uh, you know, orchestra halls and, and things of that uh, ilk. Uh, right. But today, you know, uh, WrestleMania going into uh, New Orleans in the Superdome, and uh, 104,000 in Dallas a couple of years back—big uh, deal, big deal. Totally. And when you get to 18 and 20 million dollar gates, that rivals uh, top sports right now in the in the world.
0: Yeah, and, and when you came in, Gene, did you? Uh, expect to be such a big part of how that you know in front of the cameras and and part of the basically part of how the storylines went and then your connection to hulk uh, did you expect to be that big a part of it
1: well not not really uh Uh i i I did play a a a rather big part in the awa because the interviews were were the the entertainment You didn't have uh, a Cena going against uh, A.J. Styles or a Jericho or some other heel. Uh, You didn't have Hulk Hogan uh, going against another main eventer. What what we had in the AWA is what they would call enhancement matches. And those enhancement matches would build up to the next live card in either Chicago, Milwaukee, Denver, Omaha, Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, in San Francisco, Salt Lake, wherever. Mm-hmm. And that uh, was all done with interviews. It wow. wasn't done with somebody uh, nailing somebody with a guitar like the Honky Tonk Man uh, or others. And uh, it worked. They yeah. drew huge houses. And when I, when I saw all of a sudden that they were taking kind of the entertainment out of, uh, of our television by putting on these huge main event matches on TV that normally you'd pay to see in a venue in your town. yeah. So it uh, it was a lot different than uh, initially yeah. when I was working with the old AWA. Yeah.
0: And at what point when, you, once you had arrived with the WWF, did you realize that, you know, this is, this is blowing up. This is becoming uh, beyond just uh, wrestling territories, wrestling fans that, uh, it was becoming mainstream. People were starting to take notice as they built up to that WrestleMania 1 in, in 85. Th- was there a point when you said, wow, this, this is this is getting big?
1: Well, I, I, I'd say I came, I, the first event that I covered was back at the Old Chase or Keele Auditorium in St. Louis in December of 1983. And actually, that was the very first time that I had met Vince McMahon in person. But I liked mm. the way the guy operated, and he and I would do. He did the play-by-play, uh, call of the action, and I would do the color. Believe it or not, <laughs> and it was kind of a, a a very straight Vince McMahon, along with maybe kind of a colorful Gene Okerlund. Mm. Not that uh, the other color guys had not been uh, of that of that persuasion. I know Pat Patterson was, yeah. uh, you know, a good technical guy. Uh, they even had Bruno San Martino at one time uh, doing <laughs> color, which was which a guy that didn't really have command of the English language. Still <laughs> very effective, yeah. <laughs> I mean, very they effective. Used to,
0: they used to used to make Pat say Rio de Janeiro just to, just just for grins? But yeah, that, it's yeah. fun to listen to some of that entertain that commentary. That,
1: <laughs> well, that's that, that's a that's a great story on of uh, Pat Patterson you know, that uh, he became the first intercontinental champion and won the title in Rio de Janeiro. (laughs) And uh, I asked Pat one time, how did you like Rio? He said, I've never been there. So (laughs) that was kind of an inside uh, deal where the title was won out of the country and nobody knew about it.
0: Yeah, and I think that is in the record books, actually. (laughs) It it is,
1: right. (laughs) Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a
0: good thing and that Pat found his place as one of, let's say one of the greatest bookers ever that, uh, he, that he, uh, you know, removed himself from the commentary chair, but yeah. Was, and, and, uh,
1: and your, your, your initial question, and I was not ducking it. When did I realize that we had something? Yeah, I think, and, and, and I was a part of it, yeah. uh, which was, uh, kind of a thrill for me, uh. But I, I would say it was a year, year and a half in, and all of a sudden uh, we got going with MTV, yeah. which was a hot item uh, at that time, still is today, somewhat. I don't know if it has the same then? stature yeah. that then it had it back huge. then. Yeah, it was huge. But that was a yeah. rock and wrestling connection, yeah. uh-huh. and that was dynamite. That led to uh, the big event of, of WrestleMania 1 at MSG, but other things like. Uh, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, and uh, then par- uh, various pay per view events. I mean, take a look, Sean, at the Survivor Series, King of the Ring,
0: yeah.
1: uh, Royal Rumble, which Pat Patterson, by the way, uh, originated. It was his brainchild. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the things really just became huge. And then NBC. My God, I couldn't believe that Saturday night's main event was going to yeah. be. On a major network, uh, at, at that time was a big deal.
0: Yeah, but that first WrestleMania, did you realize what Vince was risking did, uh, at the time? I mean, he put everything on the table for this.
1: Yeah, he he did indeed, and uh, he got very little help. I mean, everybody threw in their their two cents worth on that. Yeah. Uh, nobody knew what they were going to be getting in terms of uh, a payoff. Uh, There were no guarantees. You got a piece of the house and other outside revenue. Uh, Vince did get a little helping hand from uh, Dick Ebersall, who at the time was an independent producer, had Mm -hmm. been involved with Saturday Night Live, with Friday Night Videos and other assorted uh, programs that basically aired on on NBC. He ultimately became the uh, president, or should I say, chairman of NBC uh, television. Yeah, But, uh, uh, he, he and Vince got along very well and they were kind of on the, on the same mindset and, uh, all of that, uh, I think was a product of both guys early on. Yeah. And I think but that Vince, also Vince, Vince did lead the charge.
0: Yeah. And he definitely did. And, uh, the thing also with Vince and, and I was part of this, uh, you know, influx of people that he brought in that. Uh, He saw that the the only way he was going to raise the bar, because the production values to that point with wrestling had not, uh, you know, kind of the studio stuff and, you know, and he knew that I'm going to, I'm not going to find this within the world of wrestling. And he brought, started bringing people in from the networks. And that was, that was quite a collision. Uh, Gene, as I'm sure you remember well, that you brought a lot of these people in who weren't smart to the business. And then you had guys that were old school wrestling and it was the wild west.
1: Oh, it was, definitely. And, uh, yeah, the addition of uh, Sean Mooney was a a big deal. We're bringing in legitimate uh, uh, news guys, you know, entertainment guys. uh, uh, And and it all worked out beautifully. But I think that formula of people not being real smart to the business, at least on our side, uh, really was a, a a big boon for our television product back then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But um before they got there, and this is why I like to talk about this uh, when people ask about, you know, the production and how we, they did all these shows. And I I think you spent some time in Baltimore, but you know, it was very pretty much a very very small staff. Kevin Dunn, uh, Kevin Quinn, uh, Larry Rosen, and those it really was remember edit one it was just this small staff. I t- I say I you know refer to it once we went to went to Stanford, which was my home. That's where I first went. But I know you guys started, you did stuff in Baltimore, and the production eventually moved, but it was with Kevin and a very small staff.
1: Yeah, and Kerwin Silty's, Rob Wright, Bob Dean, all those guys, uh, a lot of them came out of uh, the Baltimore production facility, uh, which was, uh, I believe, Studio One or Fields Video. Uh, But uh, then you take a look at, I was just in this week uh, in uh, Stanford, and take uh-huh. a look at that facility now.
0: Huh. You've been and, in there lately. Yeah. It is
1: just fabulous. Yeah. They've got and, a virtual studio. And Vince just bought up for the company. WWE is a publicly held company. And a huge piece of real estate adjacent to the current facility. So that is going to be something else in a couple of years. All the uh, sports guys are, are now moving to end uh, entertainment guys to Sanford. They're out of Manhattan and into Stanford, like uh, NBC Sports. Uh, I see uh, my old friend uh, Vic uh, Gonzalez, Victor Gonzalez, Mm -hmm. and the the S Network is there. Uh, Springer, Murray, uh, all of the other guys, uh, Charlie Small Potatoes guys, but actually big and syndicated television emanating right from Stanford. So it has changed.
0: Yeah, and Vince had a lot to do with that. And but uh, I look back though at some of that stuff, Gene, and the WWE Network is really amazing to be able to go back and see some of the stuff. But I still die laughing looking at some of those reports that you used to do, where you would be in the uh, the studio or the uh, control room. Remember, you do these, and you, you you could you just went. I think they just gave you and said, "Go, Gene." And I know Kevin would be in there, and you'd say you'd be—I not know—you'd be smoking a cigarette or something. And I remember the hijack bit, and uh, you'd have you'd be on the phone. Did you just—that was just—you just went right. You just had to get from one place to another, and you'd have guys walk through. Uh, how much fun was that back in the day?
1: Well, it was a lot of fun. Plus, uh <laughs> I had uh, kind of carte blanche uh, yeah. creative control.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, after a while, I probably. Went a little over the, the, the edge or over the top, and all of a sudden, with uh, numbers like six and eight household ratings for All American Wrestling on yeah. Sunday morning,
0: yeah,
1: uh, that has uh, got the attention Jeez. of a of a few of the brass. And when they finally said, "What the hell is this guy doing to garner those kind of numbers?"
0: Yeah,
1: and then they take a look, and uh, some didn't appreciate uh, my sense of humor. Yeah, well.
0: I certainly did. And I know there were yeah. millions well, we of did. others who did.
1: We still continued on. So
0: <laughs> really that, that stuff is so classic. And it, as you, as you mentioned, uh, that in a lot of ways to me, when they took that away, when they started doing, controlling us completely and I had the opportunity because I did a lot of those Coliseum home videos where with the, you know, uh, we would, they had no idea what they were going to do with that. And, um, they would just say, not, okay. Not a lot got... of direction there. No, but it was great because Alfred and I, we would literally go into that prop closet at, at Hamilton and just find things. And I remember one time they had they had done some vignette, I think it was for Tugboat, and so they had all this, uh, you know, sailor stuff. So uh, Alfred put on the Admiral's hat and I'm the Swabby, or he was the Swabby, I can't remember, and we just went, go.
1: And, uh,
0: it yeah, was but that just, was good stuff fun.
1: because uh, it wasn't written uh, it was, no. it came, it, it came out of, uh, here in Alford's head. And by the way, Lord Alfred Hayes is, was one of the most enjoyable people oh, that oh, I ever yeah. had an opportunity to work with. Yeah. Uh, and you know, know how close I the... was to him.
0: Yeah. You know oh, how close I was very, to him. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. like and me and Bobby Heenan.
0: Yeah. Yep. And who will we, who we, will we'll be talking about here, but, uh, it is a damn shame that Alfred is not in the hall of fame yet and that is something i i hope is soon corrected because not just for what he did in the ring he had a, a, a tremendous uh, career as a wrestler was a great heel did uh, really awesome uh, promos but what he did with vince uh you know all those years when they were on the, yeah, on the, the air. talk show
1: yeah yeah that's yeah,
0: so, fabulous uh, that's a
1: big and miss- he, he, he will be in the hall of fame
0: well, I I hope it's, I, it's sooner rather than later. Yeah, I hope it's
1: sooner than later.
0: Definitely, we don't we don't want to
1: anybody be... to forget him. But yeah. thanks to the network, nobody is going to forget him yeah. because uh, he is uh, ever present on on the WWE network today with uh, everything he was involved in.
0: Yeah, so and he did he that's... did a lot. I mean, they, people don't realize, uh, how much he was involved in, uh, when he was the sidekick on the, the, the talk show with Vince and, uh, you know, he just, he, he was, he did a lot for the WWF and I, I really hope that's corrected soon. I like that. else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so anyway, I was mentioning, I got there in 88 in and, uh, I, I think you were just overloaded. I mean, they had you doing everything. I came in, I think Craig DeGeorge was on his way out, who was doing kind of what I ended up doing. But uh, a lot of people have asked me, you know, was Gene, on, uh, you know, uh, having heat with Vince at the time? Was he going to leave? Were you going to replace? And I said, no, I was never, there was never a, I wasn't brought in to replace Gene Okerlund. There was no, they just needed help. <laughs> they needed, yeah, remember they well, were starting that, the
1: event that, center then. Right. Yeah. And, and the event center, thank God probably saved my life. Yeah, I was going to say, because, you wanted no uh, part of that. Yeah, and and we couldn't do uh, uh, generics uh, for these uh, uh, individual markets where events were going. Uh, you, you had to do something that you could tie into the market. That's what really, really made it. And that's why the event center uh, worked, uh, uh, as it, long as you could do it. But, uh, my God, I was doing 120 interviews a day. They were each yeah. three minutes long, or 254, and you just can't do that. On mm. and on and on. I had no. eight years of 300 days a year on the road. Wow,
0: That's that's insane.
1: So, and and, 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 and people, that was no picnic for you in that event center five days a week either.
0: No, but when you, as you just mentioned, I don't know if people really understand uh, what you were doing, the original, the way they would do these events to plug uh, local shows, folks, was that they would you know, get the talent and they would line them up and they'd bring them in and you would do, you would customize every one of these markets with the talent. And, uh, Bruce Pritchard says that he was, you know, a big part of this, how they just came up with this concept, but it was a really great idea because this way you would just have the, the superstars cut their promo for that particular uh, run, whatever they were doing. And then I would be the bridge between all that where I would customize it and say, you know, this Saturday night at Madison square garden, Hulk Hogan, You know, takes on Macho Man Randy Savage, and that would be my job. And I could just do them one after another, and then they would piece all these together. But that was a massive operation to try and have one talent do that and do each one of those customized. I don't know. Yeah, there's no way you could have kept doing
1: that. There's no way. No, no. That uh, that that just we we just before you came in, uh, Craig DeGeorge uh, leaving. We did a, a, a kind of a version of the event center and the market-specific interviews, and mm-hmm. it was called face to face. I don't know if you recall that or not, but uh, I had enough profanities come out of my mouth and the talents yeah. uh, where well, we had to do things over, and that's something you don't want to do.
0: No, I mean, it was, well,
1: and it was it yeah, was painful you about testing here.
0: Yeah, and and it was believe me, at times it was uh, unbelievable, uh, unbelievably stressful in the event center. And w- because you would have one of these guys get hurt and it would affect 20 markets or whatever he was doing. And you'd have to go Let's back do him over. Oh, yeah. and I remember I've told the story They had the red phone on the desk that just had a light that would blink and it would be Howard because Howard, remember he was the one that was in charge of all these interviews at the time. Oh my God. Don't and remind me. He would call me and I'd pick up that phone cause it didn't beep unless something, it didn't go off unless something bad happened. Like somebody, or you have to change this or whatever. And I just dreaded when that thing, cause And there is tape of me throwing the phone across the studio <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. you do, you reach your point where it's just, we were customizing, you know, 90 markets a week a, at some point because they were doing so many shows. They're doing two and three shows sometimes on a weekend. Uh, Gene, you know that well. Right. And it was, right. it was, it was just incredible. This is what it was. Yeah. Real. They
1: do uh, um, a Friday, Friday night, a Saturday night, maybe a Saturday afternoon. And then a Sunday afternoon and night, and they'd be doing that in three or four markets. Yes. So it was yeah. huge. Yeah. They, they were doing uh, 12, 1,400 fourteen hundred shows—live shows, house shows—a year.
0: Yeah. It's just today amazing. they
1: do four or five hundred.
0: Yeah. But Gene, you were you were so uh, good to me back then, and uh, I was this young green kid. I don't know. I look back. I saw I saw one of the audition tapes, the audition tape that I had, I'm like, how in the world do they ever hire me? And when I went into the event center, Howard, who was a ring announcer had me screaming, you know, like I looked like I was some kind of opera singer or something. And finally I just said to him, Howard, I can't, first of all, people don't talk like this and I can't keep doing this because I won't have a voice. I'll get to 10 markets. And finally he said, all right, you know, oh, okay, you think you can do it? You know, wait, And he'd let me go. And that's when I finally kind of found my place. But uh, that was just part of the of the job. Uh, doing the the live pay per view shows is where you know I used to love doing those shows because you know we actually got to do these interviews with these superstars. And as right. we've talked about, you know, uh, for the most part, they let us do what we wanted to do. We could react. We could be you know part of it. We didn't have memorized lines. We had to do. We just as long as everybody hit their mark and did what they were supposed to do. And I think they were classic some of those were were just classic and and it was yeah, and and and, and
1: and and that's why they were so effective and mm-hmm. uh, i don't think the the scripted interview of today uh is is quite as uh is quite as you know compelling Not as effective that's for sure yeah yeah and and entertaining as yeah. as they were back in the old days
0: Oh no, kidding! Uh,
1: Where uh, what are the ones that
0: stand out? I mean, of course, Hulk uh, was always great, but were there other guys yeah. that you really had a good time uh, interviewing? And I want to talk about Bobby separately, but as far as the superstars go, I mean, you know, others that really stand I, I, out to you.
1: I I, I would say that uh, there were there were a lot of them, and I can mention some names, but I mean, uh, Randy Savage. Yeah, uh, I, would, I enjoyed working with him. Because, believe it or not, he was a professional. Oh, absolutely. He thought about everything he was going to do. Sheik. Sheik, the Iron (laughs) Sheik. My God, how many entertaining hours came out of that man? Yeah. Uh, And you never knew
0: what was going to happen, but you knew it was going to be entertaining.
1: (laughs) I had no clue. (laughs) And it it was probably good that way. Piper. Piper was uh, was an automatic. Uh, Later on, Ric Flair... Another Minneapolis guy. Yeah. Jake? Uh, and, Jake was Jake and, Roberts. And worked under uh, Vern Gagne initially. Yeah. I did his first match, as I did really? for Ricky Steamboat and wow. Bob Backlund. Yeah. So uh, uh, those, those were kind of... Uh, another guy that I enjoyed was Andre. Yeah. Because uh, he kind of mumbled. Yeah. And uh, Ooh, believe it or not, man. half of the time, he probably was in the juice. But... Uh, <laughs> That's I know kind of that. I got knocked way off it was. the set the yeah. night at the, at the garden. <laughs> by a, a, well, it was a, a, a case of wine a day. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I, that I was loved nice. it. I loved the guy. I, I traveled with him extensively. Yeah. Yeah. And believe it or not, a very sensitive guy.
0: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and that's the thing, Gene, that we I've talked about before. Of the You know, can you imagine the light that he had? People just, you know, always, he was always a spectacle to him to them. But yes. if you, if you knew him and if you didn't, uh, you just, you know, I think that I got along with him well, cause I never ever went up to him and say, Hey, what's going on, Andre, or whatever. It was always kind of when you went, but he, but if you were, if he'd liked you, if you were in that circle, I mean, he was awesome. He was just one of the nicest people I ever met. And there's and that's no no doubt about it.
1: Yeah. And he, he also, uh, in addition to having a, a good palate for fine wine, yeah. He also uh, appreciated the the culinary talents of a guy at that little French restaurant in Greenwich called oh, La Bretagne. Yeah. Yeah. it was Jean Louis and Marc and uh, the all male waiter staff. Uh, but I mean, Bobby Heenan yeah, said one time they they don't need a maitre d' they need a coroner because <laughs> they serve heart. Kidney, liver, <laughs> eh. tongue.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, you love that place. Yeah. But yeah. But uh another one of the some of the more challenging, uh Warrior I thought was always a
1: a tough one. Oh because yeah, could could be a nightmare. Yeah. Uh and, and, and there were others. Uh Ken Patera oh. yeah. was uh, a a little bit of that. Uh usually, like uh, for a radishing Rick Rude and that character was over big time yeah, with the Rude right. Awakening. Yeah. But I mean, uh, Bobby Heenan was his mouthpiece.
0: Yeah. Well, thank goodness for managers. That's the reason they have them for some of these guys, right. because they can't. Right. I mean, there's uh, uh, the countless people. And, and Pretty, and
1: pretty Blassy was a classic, uh, uh, you know, with, with his guys, the Sheik and Nikolai Volkoff. But yeah. uh, the managers are, we don't see them today.
0: Oh, God! And with that, uh, I want to talk about Bobby. And I know that you were really close to him, way beyond uh, him being a manager or the, one of the greatest color commentary guys. Uh, I know that he was one of your closest friends.
1: Yeah, well, I traveled. Uh, I worked a total of 28 years with Bobby. Yeah. And uh, it, it enjoyed him. Sometimes he was a pain in the ass. He could be. <laughs> But uh, for the most part, I would, I would say that uh, I respected his talent, how glib he was, his ability to put people over, to put angles over, to put storylines over. He was just a genius yeah. in that respect. And uh, I, I, I just so didn't like to see the last five or six years of his life. It was painful for all of us who knew the guy. Mm-hmm. He also had a very close relationship with a like gorilla monsoon, mm-hmm. uh, not so much wrestlers. Maybe a Nick Bockwinkel or a couple of other guys, but uh, but Bobby, Bobby was uh, he he liked the broadcasting end of it, and he turned yeah. out to be a hell of a broadcaster.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And uh, I, I, you look at uh, some of these reports back when he first started, and they say he was you know one of the worst. And, and then, come on. Uh, Shortly after that, he was known and to this day as one of the greatest ever. Uh, I know some of that ha- uh, happened because of the pairing with with Gorilla, uh, Monsoon, or Gino, as we know him. Uh, but right. really, the the two of them together, and uh, you know, they were uh, just magic together. And I and I, you know, you can talk about play by play guys, you can talk about commentary guys, but that team—they got
1: it. They got it done. Call yeah. them whatever you want. Yeah. I don't think you can label Monsoon and Heenan. You just say there's the two of the best, yeah. and they got it done.
0: They absolutely did. Uh, Gene, do it, you know a lot of people ask me all the time. I'm sure you you get it too about these interviews that we used to do during the pay per view events, and uh, a lot of them that we we would do what they call pre tapes where we would, we would tape them prior to the broadcast. But then we also did a lot of live ones because they'd be after matches and they wanted it to be you know uh, very realistic at that point. But I don't think people really understand how it works. Uh, we, and we would do uh, how many uh, that we did over the, over the years. But um, was that one of your favorite parts of, of our job, was doing those interviews?
1: Well, if the pay, pay-per-views were a little easier yeah. than the regular 9-to-5 world that I lived in yeah. with doing 100 interviews a day. Uh, you, could, uh, you could do take two and not yeah. offend anybody. Because you wanted them to be absolutely perfect, but I think therein probably was kind of the downfall of the spontaneity of the live interview. Yeah. And once you pre-tape them, eh, you can change it. That's how my f-bomb uh, <laughs> got on uh, SummerSlam.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was it
1: was a pre-tape and yeah. Uh, I I actually dropped a <laughs> expletive. And uh got on the air.
0: Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's one thing I people need I wanted them to understand because you would never do that during a live uh interview. And what happened was is that we do the pre tape and whoever was on tape that day on the machine, that's the way they did it back then, folks, is they rolled it to the wrong take. And that rolled, and I remember hearing it in my ear and going, Uh oh, that's not good. Somebody did something wrong there. Um but Stuff happened. Well, actually, there, 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 there was... were
1: probably four or five different takes, and yeah. Vince would take, take a listen or look at them. Yeah. And obviously, take number three, where the backdrop went over, yeah. uh, was not going to go on the air. No. But yeah. uh, the guy, you know, queued it up, and the first 15, 20 seconds were perfect. He rolled it back, rolled it into the show. Yikes.
0: There it goes. But yeah. things like that happened that, that uh, you, as Vince would say, remember at the end of these production meetings, nothing can go wrong. And we would all know that. It's right. live know. television. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But there was, you know, sometimes you do these interviews and you'd be five guys in there and they're stepping on your feet and you're trying to get over to a guy with a mic, you know, to make sure you get him in there. And if it's live, you got to get it done. And you uh, right. always somehow figured out a way to do it. Uh, the other one I wanted to, because people all talk about it all the time, is to put that cigarette out. Uh lay that to rest, Gene, on what you was know going what? on. Yeah.
1: I was out of material, and I needed a crutch. I had no no clue where that was coming from, and uh, there was somebody smoking a cigarette. Normally, I would not acknowledge that, but uh, I happened to do that one time, and people still talk about it yeah, today. isn't it amazing? And that was 25 years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we all knew, and I think that a lot of people. This, I think that uh, part of the the legend of it is because we all know how much Vince hates cigarettes, hates mm-hmm. hates anything smoking. So they thought that, oh, that was uh, that was a dig that he did that just to you know. But uh, like you said, stuff happens. It just I know there's a bunch of stuff out there that I have that uh, I wish would go away somewhere, but uh, it the stuff lives on, and it's just it's just incredible to me.
1: But yeah. man and and, and to think about it uh on the set of all American where we we were in an actual uh master control a control room yeah. uh, with all of the uh lights whistles uh, bells buzzers everything else and uh back then it was so tedious that occasionally I would light up a cigarette which I haven't touched by the way for twenty years yeah. but uh and you could see the smoke kind of Curling up in front of the camera. <laughs>
0: I know. You had it down there in an ashtray, right?
1: Right. Yeah, so and, and Linda McMahon, uh, secretary of the uh, Small Business Association or administration, yeah. was the one that noticed it. And uh, they took away my ashtray. So <laughs> <laughs> I got punished.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Like you needed it, you could have found a cup somewhere and used that. But, right, uh, yeah. right. But the point was taken. <laughs>
1: yeah, well right? taken.
0: Yeah, and, and those and the Saturday Night's main events. You talked about those and Dick Ebersole. Uh Did you remember, realize at the time how big that was? I mean, it was national television, uh, pretty much prime time, late. But
1: man, it was. It, I, well, I it went I, into I, prime time. It started out replacing uh, yeah. Saturday Night Live yeah. once a month. But then it went into prime time, and I think we ran it probably once a month. Yeah. Uh, And as a result of that, I ended up doing a ton of Friday night videos on NBC.
0: Right, right.
1: And that was for Dick's production company.
0: No Sleep production, remember?
1: No, you're right. And I would work with uh, various characters on that, some of our talent, but guys like Jimmy Hart and Hillbilly Jim. And uh, a lot of us kind of reunited for the, the Legends House, which we did back in, I think, 2013. But it just went on the air like uh, a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you rea- mentioned that. Re-
1: reality television.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know I, I did a lot of these podcasts with uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who was also one of your housemates. Uh, what was that experience like? I, I got his take.
1: Yeah, it was painful. We were, <laughs> we were there for 31 days. Uh no With no Howard. No telephone. Yeah. <laughs> Howard Finkel, Jimmy Hart, uh, Tony Atlas. Piper.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh Tony Atlas was my roommate. Uh, uh Hillbilly Jim and the uh, Pat Patterson. Yeah. Uh I did have some fun moments, but uh all in all, I don't think I'd do that again.
0: Yeah, that was that was a one time deal in life. But I I I'll right. tell you it was
1: it was it was very
0: entertaining. I, I thought the show was I watched the whole series. I binge-watched it. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, I was thinking, what is this just going to be? Are they going to rename this Cranky Old Men in a house? You know, because yeah, everybody right. just, you know. But well, then it went
1: along. It was set up that way. Yeah. It was It was set up for uh, confrontation. And oh, I'll yeah. tell you, there was some confrontation.
0: Yeah, I know. that Jim and uh, Tony almost uh, came to blows. They but
1: did. But as it ran... Yeah, and as it wrapped up,
0: though, it seemed uh, how you guys came together and and you all spoke about some of the the you know trials, you've, the challenges you faced in your life, and I, I really, I thought it was uh, a great a great show and the way it ended up. I, I would totally understand why you wouldn't want to do it again, but uh, I, I thought it was it was great, and, and I think for a reason yeah. they haven't done another one <laughs> since then <laughs> because of the the cost and uh, and just what was involved in that. It was just amazing. Oh, a huge
1: huge production uh, expense. Yeah. In that we, uh, we, we were in uh, one of the Marx Brothers' mansions out in uh, Rancho Harpo's, Mirage.
0: Harpo's house, yeah.
1: Yeah. It was Harpo, or who was ever married to Barbara? That yeah. Eventually married uh, Frank Sinatra. But uh, it was neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, they, did, they did provide us with alcohol.
0: Thank God.
1: So, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it was great to have a day at the office and then lean back and go through three martinis.
0: Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, as we start to wrap up here, Gene, uh, I, I want to move to uh, 93 when, um, or, or 94, I guess, when you went to uh, WCW. Was that, yeah, I think, was it 93
1: yeah. or '94? September of 93. Okay. Uh, I had a non-compete that they uh, enforced for, I think, 60 days. So, Actually, I didn't go on the air at WCW until November of 93. Yeah, and I but, left in 93, uh, too.
0: Yeah. Well, I didn't come south, though.
1: No. Uh, some good things happened there. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoyed the freedom that I had there because I kind of called my own shots.
0: But was it time Uh, to, Gene, was it time to, to leave WWF and you felt like you'd done everything? And I know it was a really difficult time then. It was a lot going on. I
1: was burned, totally burned. Uh, but this, this offered me a very light schedule, but still doing what I enjoy doing. And, uh, they treated me like first class. Plus I made, uh, made some good money. Not good, great. Yeah. And, uh, 900 number that, that, that made it even more enjoyable.
0: Yeah. How did that, how did the 900 number come up? Was that, uh, your idea that or was what? Part of
1: the deal. That huh? was part of the deal. That was the brainchild oh. of myself and a guy by the name of Barry Bloom, oh. who was probably one of the most active, uh, agents for wrestlers, uh, oh. of all descriptions and also broadcast talent. And, uh, I, I got a chunk of that and was able to promote it, and it was uh, just—I mean, it—it it just uh, paled uh, compared to anything that I had gotten up north. And I, I think Finch might have even had a, a little something to yeah, do with
0: that, after that, in yeah. putting,
1: putting me over, uh, where it cost Ted Turner a little money. But uh-huh. I, I have nothing bad to say about Ted Turner, and I certainly have a lot of great things to say. About Vince McMahon, you hear a lot of bad raps about the the guy, but hey, listen, the world is different today because of him.
0: Yeah, certainly the world of professional wrestling. There's no question about that. And you were there for those Monday night wars. That really, uh, as as rough as that may have been for a time, and between these, you know, the superstars, uh, you know, going down there, but it did it changed the world of professional wrestling, and many believe for the better. Because up to that point, they weren't getting contracts and they weren't getting really uh, their share of, of what they were putting out there. So what, mm. what is your take on that on that period and what it did to wrestling, Gene?
1: Well, uh, you, you, you had uh, a huge uh, corporation, uh, which uh, ultimately became a Time Warner. Uh, AOL was the death of that company. And uh, thank God they spun that off uh, as quickly as they could. But in the meantime... WCW had gone away. The one thing that I think that really established something different in our business, I saw a little bit of it this week on Raw, the -hmm. invasion of uh, SmackDown and the different lineups, and that was the NWO. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, my good Mm -hmm. friend Kevin Nash, Mm -hmm. and then ultimately Hulk Hogan, and wow, that just... uh, that lit that uh, that Monday nitro on fire, and whatever it was Wednesday or Tuesday night thunder and a ton of other shows. So uh, there were some good things to come out of it, but ultimately uh, they closed the book on that one.
0: Yeah, and uh, a lot of them talk about the fact that the schedule was good, the money was good, but in the end, it was it was uh, it was tough to be there. And um, you know, we really don't have to get into what happened happened at the time, but it, it did change how, uh, professionally, uh, how professional wrestling would move forward forever. And, uh, in many ways, good ways, because these, uh, you know, personalities, these, uh, superstars are now, you know, getting a piece of it. And it's, uh, it was, uh, a great period of wrestling. If you look back at it and how it changed things.
1: Well, it, it, since I started um, on no, until today, uh, after they closed the doors on, uh, on WCW, I had just signed a new three-year contract with uh, Turner Sports, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I had that. I could have gone for three years without doing anything, but Kevin Dunn called me one day and said, we've got a little project here called Confidential. It's mm-hmm. a working title, but it's going to be kind of an inside magazine type of show, and we'd like to have you host it. And that's when I worked with our mutual friend, Chris Chambers.
0: Yes. And we had about a a
1: two-and-a-half-year run with Confidential. It just became impossible to uh, adhere to any kind of a reasonable production uh, schedule. Yeah. Yeah, Because everything had to be current. That means I was in there on Thursday and Friday recording that thing for a play on Saturday night doing a two rating at 11 o'clock at night. Wow. It just was not worth it.
0: Yeah. But coming back, how different was had the WWE changed when during that period that you were gone and and then coming back into the company?
1: Well, I I, I would say I I think they were a lot more competitive because yeah. they had uh you know taken a little bath in the 890s, uh late 90s during the Monday Night Wars and uh all of a sudden it was uh, kind of a different world. It was a lot more buttoned up than it was when when I left in '93. Yeah.
0: yeah, and it and it's really a change because you know during our era when we, when I was there it, there was still a lot of the old school generational wrestlers. The uh, kayfabe was kind of still there. The uh, and the way it was just operated. And and now it's it's much different. It's, it really is a business, and a lot of these guys that come in don't come from a wrestling background. Has is, is that been good or bad for the business?
1: I think a little bit of both. Uh, yeah. I don't think there's a yes or no. A lot of gray area in, yeah. involved in, in that, and that's, that's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah.
0: And you were inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, in 2006 uh, by Hulk. What did that mean to you, Gene, after all uh, the years? Big,
1: big, big, big thrill. You know, uh, the induction... Uh, was was a big thrill for me. It, it meant a lot. He, by the way, uh, just said, "Whatever I've got, I'm going to cancel if you're going into the uh, into the Hall of Fame, and there's not going to be anybody but me to do that induction." Yeah. And of course, he 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 kind of went out there and told a few things he shouldn't have. But that's neither here nor there. Right, and all is forgiven. He,
0: yeah, and all the people that uh, are very close to him, he's got a tight circle of people that he trusts. I know that you're one of those people. I i never, you know, when I got there, he was already just in the stratosphere, and we never really, you know, we did hundreds of interviews together, with, but we never had that kind of relationship. But people say, and, and after all he's been through, uh, that, you know, we just did a, a podcast on him, and I still think that he is... Uh, the reason that the WWF became what it is. Gene, uh, Gene that, uh, you know, Hulk did what he did in the ring and Vince did with his genius with the promotion in there. But without him, uh, I don't think there's no way it would have become what yeah. it became. Yeah.
1: You got to have somebody uh, take care of the execution, and yeah. nobody did it any better than Hulk. There were yeah. a few that uh, uh, touched it, but, uh, you know, the savage and the flair yeah. uh, later on and. Piper, and certainly Andre was a, I guess you could call him a novelty act, but he was a big part of WWE, WWF, all of them. And uh, and all of the guys, whether you played a supporting role or a starring role, they were all important to the success of that company.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I still, though, I tell you, I've never seen human beings react to a person uh, like Hulk Hogan in my lifetime, and I've covered... Every sport there is, and I'm telling you, when you walk in an arena, when that pops and it just blasts right through you, the, the, I, I, I never have experienced that. I don't imagine I ever will again when he was at and, the height. And, and,
1: and we, uh, uh, he and I take the, the wives out once, uh, once a month for dinner. Uh-huh. So we either do it in, uh, in Clearwater or St. Petersburg and uh, or here in Sarasota where I live. And uh, we go in, he, he still gets, the, gets the, the house to kind of stand up and acknowledge who he is. He'll yeah. never be forgotten. And uh, he's having a few physical problems, but I'll tell you what, he's still the old Hulk. Yeah. Uh, he's living a good life. Jennifer has been good for him. Yeah. And uh, he's got money, a lot of it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's all good.
0: Yeah. And Jane, as, uh, if, could you have ever imagined back in 1971 uh, when you decided to step into the ring for Verne that uh, you would be where you are now, uh, that all this would have happened in your life?
1: No. And I'm, I'm still, <laughs> as you know, I've just signed a, a new uh, a long-term contract at at my age. I don't know <laughs> if they're insane or not, but uh, it was working out good for, for all of us. Yeah. And I, I never thought it would have lasted this long. You could say it's been a hell of a run. And I think we're going to take it all the way to the end. Uh, That's I'm doing awesome. Vintage today. We're doing WWE, Story Time. I'm doing yeah. some other things on the network. But you know what? A lot of the old stuff is really kind of the cream of the crop. Yeah, it is. Uh, That's why vignette all these people. that I did with Bobby Heenan some of yeah. the old shows, stuff with Mean Gene and Sean Mooney.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, it's, it's all good stuff.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you've okay. seen recently, but you ought to take a look. At, remember we did the Coliseum video out on the golf course with Bobby? and right. uh, Oh, my God, was that funny stuff. The just classic. And I tell you, folks, that was all just go. We didn't have... Scripts. It was just all right, and I had this big long. Remember, I had I'm in full dress. I've got the blazer on, and I've got this microphone with a cord with a, a cord on it that's got to be you know 500 feet long if it's anything. <laughs> I'm following you guys around. I show up all these places, and you guys were just so funny. I it's just classic. Check it out, folks on the network.
1: Uh, yeah, Gene, if, if you if you work with a guy long enough, like I worked with Heenan, yeah. Uh, you kind of are on the same, same wavelength, oh. and those things just fall into place a little easier.
0: Well, so, Gene, Gene, thank you so much for the hours and hours of entertainment, and I know we've got uh, plenty more to see. Uh, I'm glad we've been able to to stay connected over the years, here and there, and I uh, and I uh, want to thank you for all you did to help me in those early days with the WWF. And like I said many times, when it comes to announcers in the history of professional wrestling, I'll say it again. There's Gene Okerlund, and then there's the rest of us. Gene, you're a true Very kind of you, and
1: Sean, good luck with this podcast. I've enjoyed it immensely.
0: All right. Thank you, Gene. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Primetime. Gene has remained a good friend over the years. It was awesome. Talking about some of the old days in the uh, WWF, WWE and uh, he still remains a good friend to this day. Be sure to tune in next week with one of the most accomplished people I know. And, man, I, this is this is incredible. In and out of the ring, Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, now, this is a man that really didn't begin his wrestling career, if you can believe it, until he was 35 years old. But not only did he become one of the biggest names in professional wrestling, he eventually made it to the WWE Hall of Fame. He's now an entrepreneur with his DDP Yoga Uh, He's out there acting, and he's writing books. You're going to hear all about it next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time when the next episode of Prime Time drops. So do not miss that one. It is a a great conversation. And as promised before I sign off here, it's time to give away another unreleased, never-before-seen matches DVD. And I want to thank everyone for going to iTunes and giving us the review and the rating. So now it's time to go to the the ding, ding, ding bowl, and draw this week's winner. So here we go. You hear him in there? Okay, i stirring them up. Here we go. That's going to win it. It Maddie, Matty9982. That's Maddie. M-A-T-T-Y, 9982. Maddie 9982 Congratulations, you have won the Never Before Seen Matches DVD, the unreleased Never Before Seen Matches DVD. Okay, so I want you to DM me. On Twitter, and give me an address, and I don't care where you are. Like I've said, I will send this signed DVD to you. Okay? Also, go and check out Primetime with Sean Mooney Tees at ProWrestlingTees.com. Uh, get your Sean Mooney Who Tee or one another one from the collection. I promise there will soon be more. We're working on some uh, new designs, and I promise I will call everybody who buys one. Uh, that's ProWrestlingTees.com. And that is just about going to do it please keep the comments suggestions and uh, your list of superstars you want to hear from coming you can reach me at sean mooney who on twitter or at primetime mlw on twitter also email me Uh, those who have uh, know that i answer you back email me at primetime at mlw.com thanks for listening everybody talk to you next time i'm out